This edition of Farming the Countryside is brought to you by Pivot Bioproven 40 OS. The nitrogen you need, now on seed. Learn more at pivotbio.com. Welcome to Farming the Countryside. I'm Andrew McRae. In April 2017, there was debate in the country about exiting the NAFTA trade deal with Canada and Mexico that had been adopted in the 1990s. Most in agriculture considered the pact vital for strong ag markets, but preserving NAFTA required a pair of guys sneaking into the Oval Office. The story of what happened was recently revealed, and it's one you won't want to miss. It's our topic for this week's Farming the Countryside, brought to you by Pivot Bio. Farmers have faced many challenges regarding nitrogen needs for their corn crop in past years, including fertilizer shortages, higher nitrogen prices, and delayed plantings. The past few seasons, I've been using Pivot BioProven 40 to provide my corn with nitrogen when it needs it, no matter the weather. And now that predictability is available right on the corn seed. Pivot BioProven 40 on seed gives growers even more flexibility with their nitrogen plant. It's the first on seed nitrogen, and all U.S. corn growers have access to the technology. Pivot Bio products contain naturally occurring microbes that fix nitrogen from the air and provide it directly to the corn plants all season long. The microbes can replace up to 40 pounds of synthetic nitrogen. I hope you'll learn more. Just contact your local sales rep or go to pivotbio.com. During 2017 and 2018, Ray Starling served as special assistant to the president for ag, ag trade, and food assistance. In April of 2017, Starling learned that President Trump was going to withdraw from the North American Free Trade Agreement, or NAFTA. As you'll hear in a moment, new USDA Secretary Sonny Perdue had just been confirmed, and the pair knew the fate of NAFTA could have very large consequences for all in the ag industry. The story of what happened next is not only an intriguing look at the -the behind-the-scenes discussions that were taking place, but it's also a way for us to understand the importance of agricultural policy and those that are shaping those decisions. I simply began by asking Ray to explain his role on the president's staff and how the events of April 26, 2017 unfolded. Yeah, so I'm at the White House. I'm the special assistant to the president for agriculture, which means, you know, people on the outside at least expect me to know what's going on Uh, as it relates to farming and agriculture. We had just had, the day before, it might have been two days before, but we had just had the the first Farmers Roundtable at the White House since, I think, Reagan took office. Um, It was within the first 100 days of the administration. Uh, Secretary Perdue had been sworn in the day before and had become the Secretary of Ag, was overwhelmingly confirmed by the Senate. He had gone by USDA and had his first, you know, rah, rah, re, let's roll up our sleeves and get to work. Uh, and then the next morning, I'm sitting in a, in a little morning meeting, which was very common at the White House. First thing, we would get together and everybody would go around the table. And these were not long meetings. They, they were quick. And you kind of threw out what you were working on. Uh, you found out what your peers were working on. And then, frankly, you got out of the meeting and went and worked on it. And I got word at one of those early morning meetings that the president had made a certain decision about trade. So that decision impacts NAFTA. 
do you have any of the run-up of why at that point the president was thinking, I want to get rid of NAFTA, completely pull out of it? Yeah, clearly, uh, I think there are a couple things. One was the president had campaigned on this notion that, that we want to bring back the sort of made in America mantra that was very popular in the 1980s. And when I say mantra, I don't mean that disrespectfully. I mean, literally the idea that we should be developing more, manufacturing more, making more things in the United States and that if our trade deals really took into account fairness, then our domestic industry would have been in a position for more of it to be present. Clearly, the deba that debate is going to continue, right? I mean, I think there are folks on all sides of that debate. But what was clear during the campaign was that Pres that, was what cam that was what President Trump said to the American people. And when he got to the White House, that's absolutely what he wanted to do. He wanted to rework or, or throw out some of these trade agreements. Uh, and NAFTA was on that list. So when you hear that the president is probably going to get us completely out of NAFTA, what begins to go through your Well, I'm the ag guy sitting at the table, right? Like everybody else is, you know, uh, the way the National Economic Council works, there were, and I'll use the word expert, I'll let you decide whether that's true or not, but there were about eight different experts for eight different segments of the economy sitting around the table. So you would have a financial services person. You had an energy and environment person. Uh, you had uh, me as the agriculture person. And so that you, you know the, the economy sort of broke down in different parts. Uh, and what went through my mind was notwithstanding and without arguing what the impacts of NAFTA were on the other sectors of the economy, good or bad, I knew for agriculture that we had been big beneficiaries. Of, of the policies that were adopted in NAFTA that essentially liberalized trade, if you will, with our two largest trading partners, Canada and Mexico. So I was worried. I was like, right, if we trade, if we tear up this trade agreement that we've done so well in, what happens? I mean, first of all, there's sort of like a mechanical concern. If you don't have a governing document to, to say, here's what we mean when we say this, how is that? How are markets even going to function fluidly to ad adopt to that? Uh, and then the second part is: Will we continue to get the low tariff rates going into these two countries that we've become accustomed to, to getting? So, at this point, talk about how much interaction you've actually had with the president. Had you spoken with him much at all, and had this even ever come up at the time you're hearing this? Yeah. So I had briefed the president, and I, I would have to go back and kind of think about. Uh, I had probably been in front of the president two times in the Oval Office briefing him there in front of the Resolute Desk, but it was more about ag issues generally and creating what I would call the ag agenda of our administration. What are those key things that we are going to work on? And, and the key thing on trade would have been uh, we never really talked specifically about certain agreements. We talked more generally about this policy of are we getting a good deal? In other words, when we agree to terms with a trading partner and then they do not honor them and our farmers get hurt, do we have an efficient and quick way to resolve that? And I think generally the president would tell you his views were no. I mean, we know about President Trump, what he wanted to do, and make your jokes about this if you want, but he wanted to negotiate and he wanted to win. And so he saw trade agreements as the way to do that. He clearly had concluded that our agreement under NAFTA, again, if not for our part of the economy, perhaps for other parts, that, that he, he, he thought he could make a better deal, basically. At this point, Secretary Perdue has been in his job 24 hours. That's exactly right. 
So what's the conversation like between he and you? Yeah, so let, let me walk through the timeline. I mean, I'm at this early morning meeting at about 8 a.m. in the West Wing on the second floor. My boss is a guy named Gary Cohn, who had been at a small mom-and-pop trading organization called uh, Goldman Sachs, a uh, little, little equity firm, uh, before coming to be the director of the National Economic Council. And he looks down at our table, and as we are wrapping up, I mean, as we are kind of finishing up the conversation that day, he says, by the way, we have it on good authority that the president uh, is going to terminate NAFTA this Friday. The lawyers are working on the language, and uh, you just need to get prepared for that. And I think folks kind of looked around, shake their head. I mean, for some other folks at the table, maybe this wasn't the first time they had heard it. But for me, I was like, can we go back to that just a second? Can we stay there? Can we talk about this just a little bit more? Uh, and, and Gary, to some extent, he was a great boss and, and I would argue is a good friend and, and was in the right place at the right time. Gary basically said, look, I know you're going to have different views on this. Uh, the president is well aware of those views. He has been briefed. This is the course of action he plans to take. If you think you would like to do something about it, knock yourself out. And so that's kind of how, you know, shots fired, challenge made, challenge accepted. I go back to my office after that meeting, and I looked at my business card, and there's this joke in D.C. that the longer your title, the less important you actually are. And my title was Special Assistant to the President for Ag, Ag Trade, and Food Assistance. And I looked at that little part that said Ag Trade, and I was like, if I work for the president that withdraws the United States from NAFTA, my career opportunities in the ag space are going to be limited after this as a person who opines about ag trade. So uh, I called up the secretary's chief of staff, a lady named Heidi Green, incredibly talented, incredibly energetic. Uh, She had also already gotten word that this was happening, and we started to make a plan, right? How do we actually intervene into this decision? So I would think because of your title, I realize there are a lot of people surrounding the president but you don't have the ability to somehow get him word and say, hey, I think you're about to make a terrible mistake. You didn't have that power, or how do you begin to do what uh, well, you're going to do? I should say no and yes, right? Like, no, you do not have the capability as a special assistant to the president to just waltz in and tell the president your thoughts. In fact, it's it was pretty impressive, and I think a lot was said in the media about the Trump presidency and 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 how decisions were made, but at least when I was there, there, there was a process for getting in front of the president. You requested time. If you got that time granted on the calendar and you had materials that you planned to take in to see the president or to show to pre- the president while you were in there, they had to actually be shared ahead of time so that other groups could look at them and say, yeah, I'll agree, you know, you're not going in and selling, you know, half of a loaf of bread. This is actually the way the whole thing looks. Let's make sure the president has the full picture. Arguably, in no administration does that happen all the time, but that was the system I was working in, was sort of following the rules. That is until April 26th, 2017. So at that point, you didn't have the ability to do that, so you and Secretary Perdue are talking and you decide to do what? Yeah, so Secretary Purdue is in the old executive office building later that day, which is on the White House property, and he was doing interviews. Remember, it's his second day on the job. He came over to the White House grounds. He was up doing interviews, and the, the, the idea that we came up with was after he finished his interviews, we were going to take him downstairs. I knew you know, how to navigate the West Wing. I was going to take him to the Oval Office, 
and we were going to sneak in and talk the president out of withdrawing from NAFTA. That was our plan. That was our brilliant plan. Now, you say sneak in, but I would think, now you're talking about a cabinet person, though. Does the Secretary of Agriculture normally have the ability to call up the president and say, I want to meet with you? Because he's cabinet level. So, again, no and yes. Uh, I mean, I I think, obviously, uh, if you're a a cabinet member, you can get a hold of the president when you need to get a hold of the president. Uh, But, again, it's the second day on the job. This is a topic that has been vetted before. We're coming in very much at the last minute. And um, the president has a schedule. As, as I was reminded, once we tried to uh, start our plan, uh, you know, the president has meetings planned all throughout the day, in addition to just trying to have what personal time he needs to do what he needs to do. And so we had to, we had to figure out how to navigate all that. When you say that you're going to sneak in to say, see the president, that makes me think of some action-adventure type of movie. So... How do you sneak in to see the president of the United States? Well, first of all, you make sure your boss is aware so that you will not get fired, which I did. Uh, I went to my immediate supervisor, who was Gary's deputy. Uh, and then just before, once we navigated our way to the Oval Office that afternoon, just before having to give up my phone, which you have to do if you're going into what I would sort of call the inner sanctum of the Oval Office, just before I put it away, I called my boss, Gary, uh, or my boss's boss, and said, hey, I'm about to do this. Uh, the one thing I ask is that if you have to fire me tomorrow because of this, then help me find work somewhere else, but we're trying to do what we think is the right thing to do here. And so I met the secretary up where he was doing those interviews. We come down through the old executive office building. We bebop across the street and go into the bottom of the West Wing, and uh, I knew exactly how to get us to the Oval Office from there. The secretary was still sort of new to that, I think, but... I got us up outside right to the president's secretary, and I just leaned over her desk and said, uh, and reminded her of my name and said, Secretary Purdue and I are here. We'd love to just speak to the president for a few minutes uh, about a, a trade decision he's made. You mentioned that you could get fired. Who would be the person that would fire you and for what? Because this seems like a noble effort to tell the president <laughs> something important. It's such an innocent question, Andrew. Who in the Trump uh, White House could possibly fire you, right? Like, where were you when when the people were dropping like flies every day? In fact, my joke is, uh, when I talk about my 15 months at the White House, uh, I compare it to the Scaramucci guy's tenure, you know, which was only 10 or 12 days long. And so rather than counting in months, I count my tenure in Scaramucci's. And so I think I I made it like 50 Scaramucci's. Uh, So, yeah, arguably that's a little bit hyperbolic. Uh, But... Clearly, if you were to do something that ran counter to a big goal of the administration and and you somehow mixed the message on that or created controversy, um, I I think it would be almost acceptable for them to say, hey, we want you to to resign or to not be here tomorrow when we start. And so what we were doing, I, I would argue, was not conniving. It was frankly very respectful to make sure the president did, in fact, have all the information he needed to make a good decision. But before you see the president, you get headed off by who? Yeah, so there's like a good cop, bad cop thing going. So uh, President Trump had flown to New York in December to have kind of the, um, uh, I I may have mixed up my words there. Secretary Perdue flew to New York to have his tryout, if you will, for becoming Secretary of Agriculture. He met the president's personal security detail at the same time uh, he was on that trip. And so when we go into the Oval Office, and keep in mind, the secretary 
would have been relatively distant to the president throughout the confirmation process. Uh, part of the deal there, and I don't, I don't know that I can articulate it all, but he is, when you are, when you are before you're confirmed, you're obviously not supposed to be making policy decisions and running the agency because you've not been confirmed. And so for the most part, he had not been around this particular security guard or the president. And so the security guard sees uh, Secretary Purdue and he's like, Sonny, great to see you. Well, how can I help you? What can I do? And like that was our first break, that he was going to help us get in to see the president. So all was going smoothly. I'm like, this is going to work. And then the chief of staff came in, Mr. Priebus, who... Uh, and all the folks that I worked with at the White House I have respect for, but Rents had a job to do, right? Like his job was to keep the president on schedule. Pretty high stakes job, right? With any president, much less President Trump. And so he met us there uh, right outside the Oval and said, you know, what, what are you gentlemen up to? And, uh, and, and had a stern uh, talking to of us, thinking we could just show up uh, and waltz into the Oval Office. And, uh, but at the end of that conversation, he still let us snick, stick around, uh, and so we continued our pursuit. <laughs> well, that's what I've wondered. Why would he be stern with you and not just send you guys on your way? Why does he still let you that's go? That's a perfectly good question, and I, I don't really know how it ended other than to say, don't ever do this again. Right? Let me see what I can do, but don't ever do this again. And then, frankly, I remember him kind of leaving, and then I don't, I don't remember anything further about that conversation. I mean, within a few minutes, Madeline, the president's assistant, the door opened to the Oval. The people that were in there came out, and uh, we made hay while the sun was shining. So you know you have maybe a couple of minutes. Who knows how long this meeting's going to be? So what's the game plan when you start talking? Yeah, well, the smartest thing that I did was let Secretary Purdue lead the conversation because he and the president obviously had mutual respect for each other. I was, you know, the staffer in the room uh, with that said, I think the most effective thing that Secretary Purdue had with him, and this was a part of, of a conversation from earlier in the day, uh, one of the president's other advisors that had been active on the campaign trail was a guy named San Clovis from Iowa. Dr. Clovis had explained that take a map in with you. So we took what became an infamous map, and I talk about this in the book. I tell you what phrases to Google, and you can find the picture of this map laying on the president's desk later that evening. But it was a map of what counties the president had won across the United States. More counties, I believe, and I'm not trying to be blustery here, um, I think this is accurate, more counties than, than any president, presidential campaign since, I believe, Reagan. And so, of course, that map is laid out in red and blue, and, and because of the, of the rural strategy, if you will, more of the country is red geographically than is blue, notwithstanding how close the actual end results were. And I'll, I'll never forget standing there with Secretary Purdue across the resolute desk from President Trump, and Secretary Purdue taking those big sort of Georgia-born dairy farm-raised hands, and he takes his big finger and he says, if you terminate NAFTA without something else being in place, these are the people, and he circled the Midwest and the reddest, most central part of the country. He said, these are the people you're going to be hurting. And uh, it, it, there was an immediate connection. Uh, I had also been running in and out. I wouldn't say running, stepping respectfully in and out and asking the president's secretary to call other people to come down that I thought would be helpful. And by the time this meeting ended, there had to be 
15 to 20 people standing inside the Oval Office. And by the time the meeting ended, the president basically said, I'm really glad you all came in here. We're going to reconsider this decision. And uh, by sneaking the secretary into the Oval Office, we had essentially changed the course of history, at least insofar as it related to terminating that particular trade agreement on that particular week. You talk about this in the book. Do you think that most people were aware of how close we got to terminating that? Yeah, and that's, I mean, first of all, that's a cool story, right? Like, I had a chance to really be in the room at a time that mattered. But my point in telling the story in the book was not just for fun. It was to say, look, this really was the most important trade agreement to agriculture of any that we have with any countries around the world. And it was days away from being terminated. And I don't think the ag community even fully realized or knew that. And so you see how close we were to something totally upending our system. And had it not been, I think maybe for, for our actions and the good graces of the good Lord, uh, we might have been in a different place. And, and that's I, the whole point is, if that concerns you, good, right? That, that should. That is why that shrinking percentage of ag folks in the electorate, in the staff space, that shrinking percentage of people that actually understand production agriculture and then just decide to become foodies because of a certain article they read in the New York Times, that, that is where we've got to think about, wow, we pulled that one back out of the fire. What about next time? Are we prepared? Are we doing the right things to be able to do that again? I realize you've only been in the White House under one president, sure. so it's hard to compare, but do we believe that a lot of ag policy is made that way? It's just who happens to sneak in the Oval Office to make the point last? Or how is ag policy made? Because that could have truly impacted thousands of farmers one way or the other, and that conversation made a huge difference. Yeah, well, first, and I don't think I'm necessarily tooting his horn, but I think President Trump talked more and thought more about ag issues than any other president in the modern era. And we've had a number of presidents that I think are relatively friendly to agriculture, uh, or at least not hostile to it. Uh, but it was really on the president's mind. And I think the reason for that was a couple of things. A, I think he knew the ag communities, the rural communities had generally been supportive of him. And then second, I think he liked that entrepreneurial spirit, that risk, uh, willing to accept risk and to take on risk that all farmers have to have. And so I think that was a unique time. That was a unique day. Um, but in terms of how ag policy is made, absolutely. I mean, there are agency decisions, and we're literally seeing this play out today. There are agency decisions about, for example, just randomly let me choose one, uh, the jurisdiction of the Environmental Protection Agency when it comes to what is and is not a water, a jurisdiction of water in the United States, right? So one agency is making that decision that doesn't have a lot of ag people working there. And in fact, you've seen a little bit of tension come out in the press, and I don't know how real it is. I actually have a ton of respect both for Administrator Regan and for Secretary Vilsack, but at the end of the day, it's not uncommon that there's a tension between what EPA wants to do that impacts ag policy what FDA wants to do that impacts, or what the Fish and Wildlife Service want to do that impacts ag, that, that is different than what USDA or Secretary Vilsack, or in my case, Secretary Purdue, might want to see. And so maybe that takes us right back to where we were, that we've got to figure out how to broaden the appeal. And we've frankly got to be at the right places at the right time and not be scared to kind of run up in the middle uh, to, to, to pull, as I say, something out of the ditch. 
Before we wind up, on a personal level, I'm interested. Ray Starling's leadership style <laughs> seems to be almost a polar opposite of President Trump's leadership style. <laughs> so I'm curious, how does Ray Starling interact with the President of the United States when the two of them might look at leadership very differently in how they work with people? Yeah, I think one thing I'd say, just off the, and thanks for the opportunity to respond to that, but one thing I'd say off the top of my head is, at the end of the day, what we've got to get better at in this country is respecting each other. Um, and, and there's something about walking into the Oval Office, and regardless of who is in there, it's an environment that commands respect. And so the truth is, you know, uh, uh, absent all the hyperbole around elections, um, it was the President of the United States, and I had an opportunity to advise him on agriculture. And um, it was obviously a pretty fun thing to do. So I think it's just really about respect. And frankly, the 12 or so times I was in front of President Trump, he treated me similarly. Ray's story about the behind-the-scenes maneuvering with NAFTA is certainly interesting. I'll have more with Ray on a future episode as he talks about the interaction between farmers, food companies, consumers, and advocacy groups as they wrestle over the rules governing the way we farm and grow food. And if you want to connect with Ray or find his book, one easy way is just visit his website at shortroseleadership.com. Thanks for listening to this week's show. Remember, you can access all of our archive shows at farmingthecountryside.com or on any podcast platform. I appreciate you joining me. I'm Andrew McRae. I'll catch you next time on Farming the Countryside. This edition of Farming the Countryside has been brought to you by Pivot BioProven 40 OS, the nitrogen you need now on seed. Learn more at pivotbio.com.